Hello again, everybody. I'm Gary Thorne, and this is The Sports Rivals. We're going to go into our archives today, this being the final month of what has been a most unusual baseball season for 2020. Nevertheless, the World Series getting played and the excitement of the postseason. That's going to be a look at what it's like through the players' eyes for postseason baseball here today. We're brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? Postseason baseball is, of course, called the second season for a good reason. So you don't have a lot of time to make mistakes. You've got to do things right. Heroes sometimes become goats and vice versa. We'll talk uh, to a couple of players who have been there and have uh, experienced both sides of that coin. A reminder that uh, we are sponsored by betonline.ag. Head there today, take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. From our archives, postseason baseball is the subject. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the uh, Sports Rivals. I'm Gary Thorne. We are delighted to have you with us. A couple of great guests we're going to introduce to you uh, to talk about one of the great baseball championship series that went on. And our purpose here is to preserve the memories of classic sports rivalries. We do it through the words of those who participated in them. And these are the rivalries described from the inside out. I'll introduce you to the guests in just a moment, but let me set the stage for what we're primarily going to be talking about. It's the 1988 National League Championship Series between the Dodgers and the Mets. Dodgers would win it seven games, but what a seven games it was. These two teams came in both having had outstanding years. The Mets won 100 games during the regular season in 88. The Dodgers won 94. The Mets, uh, if you listen to the guys who are setting the numbers on this, the Mets came in as a favorite in that series. They were led uh, Gary Carter, Mookie Wilson, Lenny Dykstra, Daryl Strawberry. On the mound, uh, they had Doc Gooden, David Cohn, Ron Darling, Sid Fernandez, Roger McDowell, Randy Myers worked out of the bullpen. The Dodgers came in uh, with the likes of Kirk Gibson, Mike Socha, Steve Sachs, John Shelby, on the mound, John Tudor, Tim Belcher, Jay Howell, who was doing the work out of the bullpen for them. But the two we have with us today were the two key figures in this 1988 series. For the Mets, it was their leader, their gold glove first baseman, Keith Hernandez, a 296 career hitter, one of the greatest first basemen defensively in the game, 11 gold gloves consecutively, the most ever by a first baseman, and considered by many, including myself, who had a chance to watch him play a lot of games. He's probably the best defensive first baseman in the history of baseball, who ended up with a hitting productivity 31 cent, 31% above the league average. That's, he was one of the toughest outs in the history of the game, along with the great glove at first base. And in 1988, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody who had a better year than Oral Hershiser, our other guest today. Oral, who played 18 major league seasons, ended up with 204 wins. And in 1988, he won 23 games, 15 complete games. Mm -hmm. And it was the year in which he pitched 59 consecutive scoreless innings going into the NL 
NLCS. He was the MVP of the NLCS, the MVP of the World Series, and a Cy Young Award winner, all in the same year. No one has ever done that in the history of baseball in one season. So that sets the stage. Our guests, Keith Hernandez, Oral Hershiser, the 1988 League Championship Series. Guys, it is just great to have you on the line. We really appreciate it and can't wait to hear the memories. So let me start it out this way. Let me ask each of you if you would, off the top, if I said, give me the memory you have of the 88 series, what comes to mind first? Keith Hernandez. Uh, a line drive directly over my head at Shea Stadium off the bat of Mike Soship with Dwight Gooden on the mound, two outs away from, uh, oh, actually, uh, three outs away from uh, victory and taking a commanding 3-1 lead in the series. Um, and it tied the ball game. Uh, I also, that would be the one uh, moment I remember, and there are several. For me, it was uh, game four coming in relief after starting the day before and having the Met fans greet me with, oh, rule, <laughs> And I think that there was an expletive after it. A lot of them were saying uh, something that started with an S. I think it was <laughs> S-U-C something. And then there were two more letters. But it was, it was, a, it was a very impactful, emotional series. Um, the intensity of New York and the rivalry between the – you know, the two cities of Los Angeles and New York. But that, that was the culmination for me of that rivalry. And we've got to remember Gary Oral was that we dominated the Dodgers in the season Ugh. during the season. They only won Ten one out game. Of 11. From a, yeah, yeah, they only won one game. And But we knew going in that um, that meant nothing and that the Dodgers – I was looking through uh, in baseball reference. They had a team ERA that year of 2.96 which is pretty incredible. Uh, and we knew that their pitching staff, we had a better offensive team than the Dodgers. Mm-hmm. They, they couldn't stay with us offensively. But pitching is the name of the game, and uh, we knew we had our work cut out for us. You know, Keith, what I remember most is that, you know, you guys had beat us 10 out of 11. But then in game one, I don't know what it was like in your locker room after the great comeback in game one when Gary's ball falls in. But I'm telling you what, on our side, we were crushed until Tommy the next day came in and said, you know what, if it was a one-game series, we'd be out of it. It's not. It's a seven-game series. He came through the locker room shouting and screaming. Some of the reporters were in there. But that game crushed us because you guys had beat us 10 out of 11. It looked like we had a chance to go up 1-0, and then you guys come back in the ninth. Yes, we got the two. Uh, the, 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 I'm trying to look here. Oh, we got. Uh, I got the wrong game. Uh, it was three to two the final. We got two in the ninth. Yep. You uh, started that game against Doc, and you got through. You were into the. I well, I, I think I went like eight in the third or so and got relieved. Yes. I got a little tired there at the end, but getting tired against your lineup is easy. <laughs> well, I'm. I'm just. Uh, uh, I remember that. I felt relieved after that game because it was a blue base hit by Carter that uh, yeah. scored the two runs to win it for us. I think it was a blooper over up shallow center field. So yeah, I felt lucky sure. that we, I felt lucky we got away with the win on game one. And you know, I always felt too. The same thing happened to us in '86. Oral was we had the best record in, in the National League, and we had to play mm-hmm. one and three, one and two, and six and seven in Houston. 
and you guys won 94, we won 100. I always felt the team with the best record should have had the home field advantage. And you've played in postseason, Oral, and you know yep. that it is so critical to have six and seven at home. I mean, that is such a huge edge to be playing at home in front of the home folks. It sure is. And, uh, you know, especially when you're talking about two cities like ours, uh, it really gets intense. And it's even more intense in New York because when you're on the road in New York and everybody in the city is talking to you about it, no matter where you go, if it's room service, if it's at the desk clerk, if it's whatever you're doing at the hotel or trying to get to the ballpark and the bus driver, everybody is a New York fan. Sometimes they're Yankee fans, but they still are pulling for the Mets. So there's an intensity and a pressure on you all the time you never get a break from it i've got to ask you a question oral did, uh, when yeah. did lasorda come up to you he had to tell you that you might be doing some duty in the bullpen did he when did he come up and tell you that or did he well when when we got to that game remember jay Hall got suspended for having pine tar in his hand correct and they threw him out so you know i went to tommy right after that i went to jay Hall's press conference when the commissioner suspended him i went i went to tommy and i said you know tommy i will do this i'll be your closer and he goes no get away from me you throw over 100 pitches you you know seven innings a day before get away we'll figure this out well then you know that game was such a nail biter uh we're talking game four we ended up winning at five four but it was a game where uh, you know, you guys were dominant and Gooden was dominant until Sosha hit a home run late. Uh, Sosha hit a home run in the ninth, and I think, to tie it up. And then we end up winning the 12th on the Gibson home run. Right. You know, and our pitching was on fumes. Um, and we were down to just Jesse Orozco. And I'm like, Gibson hits the home run, and Jesse's already in the game. So there's nobody in the bullpen but Mark Cressy, our bullpen coach. And I just – I ran in, and I'm not even sure I greeted Gibson after the home run, but I ran in the locker room and threw all my game-watching clothes off and put on my game-playing clothes and all mm-hmm. and spikes and went down to the bullpen and lied to Cressy and just said, I'm, I'm here to get ready. And he goes, what do you mean? I go, don't call. Just get me ready. And then uh, I told him I was ready, and Jesse was – the inning was getting away from him. And uh, all of a sudden, Tommy, you know, he called down to Tommy, and Tommy said, yeah, if he's ready, leave him – keep him hot. And uh, he ended up bringing me in. Yeah, That game I, was ridiculous. Uh, that was, I think, the turning point for the – for the Dodgers, a turning point in the series was yeah. that game started at 8.20 p.m. And yeah. we played a four-hour and 29-minute game. <laughs> yeah. And so it went way into the evening. And I must say that when Gibson hit the home run, it, 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 it took a – I can speak for myself only. It knocked a lot of wind out of my sails. And we had a day game the next day at 12.20. I believe, yep. uh, at 12.30. And the team, you know, a day game following a night game is, is is always a tough game. And even though it's playoffs and you're running, you've got you're, the adrenaline flowing. It yep. wasn't – it would have been better for us if it had been another night game to kind of recover. And I just don't feel that uh, – I, I just went into game five with a bad feeling. And uh, I just felt like I'd been gut-punched. Uh, I guess much like you guys felt in game one, but at least you had – seven games left and with that win you guys ensured that the series would go back to your home ballpark yeah you know what you know what makes me feel good is that you guys feel the same gut punch that we felt from you all year and i don't mean that in a negative way as much as even to to beat 
the 88 Mets to play against you, especially, and, you know, Carter and Strawberry and Backman and Jeffries and Mookie Wilson and Kevin McReynolds and the whole lineup, even if you did well and won the game, you still felt like you just came out of a war. Like you just got beat up even though you won. So the stats didn't matter, but the feeling of, oh, my God, just going back and laying down and going to bed and just going, oh, my gosh, I need to recover from that game because you guys were so good and so emotionally tough and so with it, you know, every single bat. What I remember about you personally is just the the competition was so fierce of you just stepping into the box, the way you worked your feet in the box and got your stance, the way you, you know, wiggled your fingers and got your back going and and really looked out at the mound it was like oh my god and then i went back like you on baseball reference you in your career you hit 395 off me i think <laughs> i'm like oh my god it was a battle <laughs> you kicked my butt uh, well not it wasn't, it wasn't easy but i, I know uh, that this is the year that you had uh in 88 and i we talked about this that was you had that little extra zip on your fastball. You used to run a little sinker away, a little hard sinker. You threw a heavy ball. And um, that year in 88, I was facing you in Dodger Stadium, and you came inside with a fastball that started around four inches off the plate, and it almost broke back on the black. It just missed. But you put an extra two miles per hour on it, and it got my attention. And I was just so thrilled. Uh, that you never really came inside and gave me that pitch much more that season or down the road because you know you would always run that sinker away and throw the curveball. Yep. And then I'm a left-hand hitter. I mean, so uh, you know I would just sit on the outer half of the plate on you and just try to take you up the middle. And you face the great pitchers. I'm not going to go up there and swing from my from my fanny. I, I've got to try to be as tough as out as uh, line drive hitter, tough out as tough as out as possible because it was no it was hard work against you. Yeah, it, it, it was hard work against you too. You know, if I would have learned, you know, I I know with these saber metrics nowadays um, and all the stats, if I'd have learned to pitch inside a lot sooner, maybe I had a little better career because I just did live away. And back in our day, remember the outside corner was more than the outside corner. I mean, it was three, four inches off the plate. You could get a strike, but on the inside corner, it felt like the ball needed to be on the plate. And mm-hmm. so it just felt like the umpiring was almost trying to keep the pitcher away from hitting the batters and, and, and getting inside and causing, right. you know, brawls and all that stuff. But I'll tell you what, this series that we're talking about, um, you guys were a fantastic team. What'd you win it in 86? And then you could have been a dynasty. You know, there's yeah, only a few been. teams that gotten away of you. There's those three, four, five years. Yeah. Well, we had the final, we had to battle the Cardinals, you know, the Cardinals, yeah. you guys, uh, what, in 87? 80, 85. 85, right. 85, and you guys win in 86. And then they win it back in 87. So 87, they, they, yeah. Yeah, so it was, it was a tough division for us. And uh, uh, I just want to ask you one question. I always felt, yeah. I mean, Kirk Gibson going into this postseason with the injury, his leg injury, yeah. he got the big hit, the home run. Uh I felt that when Gibson came over, that it kind of added a little bit of toughness to the Dodger team that I always mm-hmm. felt wasn't there. And I just felt that, you know, he didn't have, he won the MVP that year. Uh, it, it's debatable whether he, he could have been Strawberry, it could have been McReynolds. He certainly had a great year. But I just felt that Gibson, and the fact that he hit that home run in that critical game off McDowell that switched, that flipped the whole series in your favor. 
Yeah. Uh, I just felt that he brought something with him besides his play on the field. He did. You know what? He made it cool to be tough. He made it cool to show your emotions. Uh, I think that, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of the laid back attitude in all of LA at times. And the competition is more about, you know, go out there and do the best you can. And this, there was an edge then to our team and not that Tommy didn't preach that or, or try and get that going. But when you have the living, breathing example above and beyond like Steve Sachs's hustle or Mickey Hatcher's pranking and being right. able to, to play real hard, you're right. We all of a sudden got the edge that you brought to the game every day that Backman brought to the game every day. You know, I always thought your lineup and you personally, as far as your leadership and toughness, one of the, one of the top competitors in all of baseball that I ever faced. Well, um, I appreciate that. And we're getting back to it was game two when Hal got uh, he walked the first batter. Yeah. Davy went out and said, "Check his hat." I believe it was he had pine tar. I didn't want to make a big deal about it. Uh, and, well, we were all kind of using it. Everybody, I'm sure, in your staff and our staff, because you know, in that series, we should have probably never even been playing the series. What it was, 33 degrees and sleeting, and oh, man, the delay game was terrible. I tried to go. Remember the base hit to left field. I was on first base. I made a hard turn around second, and Gibson botched the the, the ball. It kicked out away from him, and I went yeah. to go to third, and I just I, it was so muddy. That I yeah. just I, I like skated the third base and was thrown out, and yeah. we wound up only getting I think one run in that inning. Uh, but that was really bad the playing conditions right there. But both teams got to play. I didn't want to make a big deal about it. And you know, after game two, when yeah. Cone David, we can't forget what David made the biggest mistake of his life and with Bob Clapich, <laughs> and he 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 mocked uh, Jay Hal. Jay Hal had yeah. good stuff. Jay Howe had an excellent. Called it a popcorn, a high school popcorn curve. Oh my God! I beg to differ. He had a he had a wicked breaking <laughs> ball. <I'm> sorry. <laughs> so, um, and I it was a rallying cry. I heard Lasorda on the third base dugout, all the way out on first base, screaming at David. Yeah. And David's such a nice guy. He went twenty and three for us that year in twenty eight starts. He uh-huh. started out the month of April. He he had uh, seven relief appearances and then when the off days kicked out he went into the rotation in, in, in late april and went 20 and 3 had a phenomenal phenomenal year i felt so good going into game two with yeah. cone on the mound and then i i pick up the paper and i uh, and i see what and i made we went out took bp i could see that david was just really upset and I remember I got, went to Bob Ojeda and I said, Bob, go in and talk to David. We're out in the field taking BP. And I should have gone in there and tried to talk to him, but he just did not have a chance. I mean, he went two innings. He had a balk. He had a yeah. hit batsman. He got hit around and he just, he just wasn't with it. Then he turns around and pitches game six and pitches a gem against you guys. I guess it's game seven. Yeah. It's almost like, like what you talked about with the, uh, the, the big comeback in 12 inning game in game four and then game five was just another one of those emotional recoveries that needed to happen. And he couldn't that quickly. You know, I can, I can remember the bench jockeying from our bench after that article and he's on the mound. I mean, you're right. Lasorda, everybody was wired in that game. Yeah. And we, we jumped out, you know, I think we got a, a run early in the first inning, which put him on his heels. Then we got like four in the second 
And right. it was like, oh my gosh. And you know what? That was another recovery for us emotionally because you had, you know, had come back in game one and, and gut punched us. And now all of a sudden in game two, we've got that article and Tommy going nuts in the locker room. And all yep. of a sudden we jump out on top and, and that swung it emotionally. And as fans, you know, they're, they're watching and thinking, okay, oh my God, the momentum, this and back and forth. And we feel it as players too. I mean, we can admit it later. We don't admit it in post-game interviews in the middle of a series, but later, as we, here we are years later, we can talk about the emotions of the moment and how it does swing. Now tell me how you felt. Uh, you're going to pitch game seven. You're up against Ron Darling for, yeah. for, the, for the National League crown. How were you relieved <laughs> that they got the big lead for you and gave you some room to breathe? You know, the biggest thing that was for me before the game, I'm, you know, I'm going on three days rest, no days rest. This, right. You know, we're, we're doing whatever we can. And the biggest thing was that, that Davey didn't start good. I was like, you know what? We've got a chance to maybe get to Ron. We got a chance to lay off the splitter in the dirt. If the guys can be disciplined in a big game, right. just, you know, and, and Dwight had had good games and bad games, but in, in general, Dwight at that time, he was like one of the most dominant pitchers, if not the most dominant pitcher in the yep. game. And we're like, Davey's saving him for maybe later. And we don't know, you know, maybe he could go three, maybe go four, maybe he could go two. But right. we were like, a start of a game, if you can break on top, is so much more important, I think, than, well, the sabermetrics are telling, the, the stats are telling us now the games are, are more important, the innings are more important later. But for me, emotionally, as a guy who was on short rest and pitching against you guys at Juggernaut and a team that has dominated us, I was like, God, I'm so glad it's not good. That's where yeah. my first start was going into seven. Yeah, they got you five in the second, and I made, uh, I believe, in that inning, what is probably the worst play of my career. No Sosha way. And Ham- Sosha and Hamilton let off with base hits. It's, yeah. uh, it's two to nothing, and it's in the uh, second. Uh, I'm sorry, it's uh, one to nothing. You got one of the first. And Alfredo Griffin's coming up. Yeah. Now, you're hitting behind Alfredo, and Alfredo only hit 190 that year, and I'm not sure if he's going to bunt or not. But mm-hmm. I've got to respect the bunt because. Alfred is a good bunter and he can run like the wind. So I was playing uh, a little bit in front of the runner. Uh, remember, the runner's on first and second. I don't have to hold anybody on. I couldn't play aggressively on the bunt because you're hitting behind them. And I can't believe that Lasorda would bunt the set out, even though you were a good hitter. Um, uh, yeah. th- uh, that uh, Lasorda would bunt. And he squared around in the first pitch. I'll never forget. And it was a ball. And I said, well, darn. And second pitch, I believe it was, I remember he, when Ronnie was looking for the sign, I moved in tighter and Griffin uh, looked at me and I said, he handles the bat well. I said, he's going to try to poke one by me. And I got caught in between in my thought. And he remember he tried to bun it over my head and he popped it up. Yep. And it bounced in front of me. And I didn't even throw to first base. I just had a complete brain lock. Yeah. And now the bases are loaded, and you guys have the beginnings. You followed with, you reached on the air, on the ground yep. ball, the third, and then Sachs got the big hit that scored two runs. And I just the worst play of my career. 
Well, that was probably the only play that you made poorly at first base as good as you were. <laughs> Holy smokes. You were the best throwing first baseman. You had the best range at first base. You had the most guts at first base to make the key play. You you knew where to position yourself at first base. So if you made all your mistakes for your whole career in one play, I guess I got to well, thank you right now. Well, well yeah. <laughs> Game seven. And let me tell you something. When you guys went on and won in five against the, the o- Oakland, I was yeah. so happy because let's face it, we're all national leaguers. I'm yeah. not an American. You played in Cleveland, I played in Cleveland. We are yeah. national leaguers and we always pull for the national league. And I thought, you guys going there, you're going to have your hands full. And I saw McGuire and Conseco get jammed the whole series with those hard sinkers in. Yeah. And let's not forget another guy. You, you were terrific. Uh, I would tell you, Belcher threw great. Yeah, he did. Belcher, he threw two fine ball games. Yeah, he. You know, with the I, we did a lot of studying of their lineup, and I really figured out that they were breaking ball hitters because they they got so much respect that from pitchers in those days that right. nobody wanted to throw them a fastball, and so they looked like they were breaking ball hitters, and they got right. so many breaking balls. Their bat speed for me was like, guys. We're not throwing them a breaking ball for a strike, and we should pound them inside and speed them up. And then maybe finally in the series later, we can throw them breaking balls right. where they'll chase them. But to, exactly. to, to start those guys out with breaking balls for strikes because you respect them and you don't want to throw them a fastball early to get a strike, I'm like, I think these guys are going to be on it. If you go back and watch those games, we hardly ever threw them a breaking ball. And and it was just the way we went about it. I mean, right. your, your club, man, you guys would have went through them like a hot knife. Well, you never you never know, but I'll never forget. It was just you pounded the two the Batch brothers inside that you guys, and just yeah. ate them ate them up. But you know, Belcher in our in our series in the playoff, yeah. he pitched a great game in game uh, game two. He, like game he had the win. You guys couldn't go down to love coming to New yeah. York. And he pitched a heck of a ball game, and then he pitched. I forget what game he pitched. Later, he won again. Uh, I can't think, but he threw another good game. Belcher had good stuff. He threw hard. He had a heavy ball, and he really was dropping drive and over the top a little bit. And I, I always had a hard time picking him up. Um, another guy that was, I think, that was big for you was uh, uh, Alejandro Pena. Uh, out yeah, of the bullpen. Alejandro, he had a heavy, yeah. Yep, and he ate me up. I I did not I, I couldn't figure him out. And all he did was pound these fastballs away and I just couldn't I just couldn't get a rhythm with him. I was a, he, he got me out. Or let me ask you something because you were I want to go back to game 7 that you uh, ended up with a complete game uh, and just five hits and you, you worked almost half of the total innings pitched by the Dodgers staff. I think it was yeah. 65 total innings and you worked almost 25 of them. Shoulder um, surgery later. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about David Cohn made a comment about how the fired the guys up. Were you aware yeah. of David Johnson's comment before game seven? It was after game six where he said, what might undo the Dodgers is the fact that Oral's having to pitch so much. Were you yeah. aware of that? I definitely was aware of that. And that was a nice ex- inspiring comment again. So <laughs> Yes, I was definitely aware of that one. It was, uh, you know, I, I had a couple times uh, in my career where I wanted to tell somebody to grab a bat 
and that was one, that was one of them. Uh, at the end of the World Series, a kid came up to me like the Mean Joe Green Coca Cola commercial, and yelled at me as I was walking to the press room to accept like the MVP and some stuff and uh, do the press conference. And a kid yelled at me, "You were lucky, Hershiser." And I just turned to him with a little wry smile. I said, "Grab a bat, kid." And then, but Davy Johnson was the same way. When I saw the quotes there, I just said to him, oh, I wish he was active. Tell him to grab a bat. So that was definitely an inspiring comment again. What, when you saw that, Keith, what was your reaction to that with what Davey had said before Game 7? I don't recall that. I do not recall that. I, I just um, was focused on, uh, you know, Game 7. And I was very angry at uh, Bob Klappich, who wrote the story on Game 2. Um, and we had had an 88, Gary. You, were you there? Yeah, I was there. Yeah, and we were, that's when we had the big, you know, the kerfuffle with, uh, the, uh, the, with the uh, team photo day with Daryl and I. Daryl was holding out with a new agent. Um, we were starting to get a little, some cracks mm. uh, in the foundation of our team, and we were always so tight. You know, Dykstra came into his own. Mookie was the professional and accepted being platooned. Lenny didn't want to be platooned and, and had to accept it because he was younger and he just had the chance to play. But as he developed into a star, um, uh, you know, he started grumbling. So we weren't really that cohesive unit that we were when we started turning things around in 84, then 85, 86, 87. And then 89, we just kind of fell apart altogether. And it's hard to keep a team with 25 personalities. It's hard to keep them all together with one focus. And uh, everybody, you know, like the Three Musketeers, you know, everybody in on it together. Uh, yeah. So, anyway. Uh, yeah. Talk about the Game 7, guys. Would you... Uh, what that is like and what the... For you, for each of you, what it was like the night before. I mean, is it different... Mm. I mean, it's got to be. I mean, geez, everything's on the line here. Yeah, it, for me, for me as the pitcher, uh, yeah, I felt like on a lot of these games through this whole series, and then in Game Seven, I felt like the weight of the world is on you because you have a great year. You win twenty three games. You've got this scoreless streak. You, you know, you might win the Cy Young. Danny Jackson might win it. And all of a sudden, you're down to one game can change the whole narrative of the year for the city, for the organization, for the O'Malley's, for Tommy, for my teammates. And so you just feel like, you know what, I'm supposed to win this game or I'm supposed to give them a chance to win. And if I don't, I'm going to be the biggest goat in the world. Mm. Well, you went out there and threw a nice little shutout. My friend. Well, they got me the runs early. You mentioned that earlier when we were talking, and that that was a huge relief, you know, to get the one in the first and the five in the second, and then then it was like, oh my God, you are now really going to be the goat if you blow this. <laughs> How about the UKs on a game seven, getting ready for it? Well, I always, you know, the most important player on the field every game, single game, is the pitcher because he's the one that's out there that's most involved. Uh, I'm one, I'm one eighth of a lineup or one ninth of a lineup. Uh, I the situations may not come up where I can have any any uh, meaningful effect in a ball game. Uh, I we're on the road too. We're in a hotel. It's fine. Uh, we know we're we're used to that life. Uh, I was very relaxed. I mean, I just I mean I 
most of the guys went down to the hotel bar uh, and after the game, we just had a couple beers and we chatted up. That was a very loose atmosphere. And, uh, you know, when you're young, things are a little bit more pressurized. When you're a veteran and you've been down the road, um, you handle it much easier. But once you got to the ballpark, I had no problem sleeping, never. And But once you get up and you or get that room service breakfast on the road and you start getting your game face on and it gets and you, just the intensity builds up and until game time mm. you know i think that you know with keith i don't know keith you can talk to this but for me you know there were two guys that went in the hall of fame one year the eckersley and robin yell or, or was paul molitor and one was like running towards success the molitor and one was running from defeat eckersley but they're both running in the same direction and in, in games like Game 7 against a team like yours, I felt like I was running from defeat, not running towards success. And it sounds like you, as a, as a, as a player and your confidence, you were running towards winning. And, and we're both running in the same direction, but I'm like, this team, this group I'm facing with our team with has less offense. It was like, okay, I'm, I'm walking into a hornet's nest, and i got to figure out a way to survive. Well, I tell you what, I always played with the fear of failure. Uh, when I had, uh, I always felt like I could have, the game could have been so much easier for me and I could have been even better uh, if I didn't have uh, this, I, have a, I had a lot of negativity to, to, to battle. I mean, Lou Brock was my mentor and Lou Brock embraced the game. Lou Brock had great World Series, unbelievable in 64, 67, mm-hmm. 68. Um, I never felt comfortable in the World Series because I never faced their pitchers. Um, although I, uh, Milwaukee, I had a good series. I did not have a good series against Boston. Uh, but I always, when I was, okay, who's going to get up and hit for me? I mean, I, what am I going to do? I get up with a good ninth inning and then the game's on the line, close and late and close, you know, in a World Series. Uh, you know, it's like, oh my God, it's on me. And I just really, uh, I think I I performed better with you know I guess the gun of a gun in my head, but it oh. made things much more difficult. Everybody looked at me and thought I was just a confident guy. We all have our <laughs> we all have our uh, our weaknesses, our doubts, and we just have to overcome them in that situation. You know, oh look at you, uh, you know that's why you're the great pitcher you were, and. It, athletes rise to the occasion, but there's also a mental battle going on too to get that mental toughness. Isn't it amazing that, you know, what oozed out of our skin was confidence and bulldog and you as, you know, just a street fighter. I felt like just out there, just, okay, I'm going to kick your butt. And, and you're saying you're coming from a place of avoiding defeat and I'm coming from a place of avoiding defeat. (laughs) You know what? We fooled a lot of people. (laughs) <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> we fooled a lot of them. <laughs> did you fool your? Did you fool yourselves? I mean that seriously. I mean, was it an attitude that you had to have in order to be successful because of the way you were feeling about the game? Were you able to kind of move yourself out of spot A over to spot B where you needed to be? It's that that you know when you study it finally and you talk to psychologists and they have them in the locker room for all of us, uh, you know that fight or flight syndrome where you're backed into a corner right. and you're either going to curl up in a ball and take all these punches and be a victim or you're going to fight your way out of the corner. And right. I think the person that put the label on it for me was Tommy. He's my baseball father, 
And Tommy turned me from the guy that like, okay, I, I might be, end up being a victim, like ball one, ball two, to, hey, look at your name's Bulldog and you're going strike one, strike two, and you're going to attack and you're going to fight. And you're, you know, Dale Murphy is not that great a hitter. You're just as good. Go get him, you know, right. throw some strikes to Keith Hernandez. You can attack Strawberry. And Tommy gave me that attitude. Like It was almost like a definition of a new attitude of, of no, you're not going to be a victim. You're going to fight. It's, it's very interesting how there are certain people in your life that come around uh, that are such a positive force. And it's always someone that uh, is encouraging. And, you know, if you're an athlete, uh, you're, you, you're used to competition. Bring out the competitive spirit in the athlete, and, and they will respond. Lasorda was a leader. He was a very positive guy. Uh, I, I can see, and he had a profound effect on you, where there's people in my life uh, that, had, that, had a, that were there for me. I felt like I had guardian angels on my way up uh, through the minor leagues. Early in my career, when I struggled in St. Louis until I found myself, uh, but there were people along the way that were there that if they hadn't been there, I don't know if I'd have made it. Right. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Hey, hey, Gary, Gary, yeah. Gary, you think about, you think about this, that, you know, we played this tough series. Keith was a world champion. I was a world champion. We, we fought and battled on the field and thought of something else about each other. And now here we are some 30 some years later, uh, talking about the admiration, but where, where it all was rooted and I just think it's so encouraging for people that are trying to accomplish something for young people in the history that you're laying down. It's, it's really important for them to know that we are not these robots and we are not like, you know, unbelievably courageous people. We're just people that have, have certain amount of talent that <laughs> had good things happen to us and we worked at it. Mm. Had a lot of talent. That's it's, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, let, let me ask in that regard what Oral said to each of you is that uh, I'm sitting here thinking just off the top. You, uh, as Keith has mentioned earlier, you don't, and you mentioned or you don't say these things in the course of a year, or course of a very important playoff series. It's it's stuff you keep within you. Should mm-hmm. you? Is it is it? Does it have to stay within you, or maybe it, even while you're playing these kind of admissions? especially regarding younger people who are trying to make it or younger players to know that that's okay. Is it something maybe that can be let out of the cage without waiting for 30 years? Or is it something you got to keep inside in order to keep going forward? Uh, for me, for me, I don't know, Keith, where you're at. I've, I've done a lot of talking. You go first on this one. That's a tough, it's a really tough question. I, I, whether you keep it inside or not, I think it's important to know that, um, it's okay to fail. I mean, if you're a 300 hitter, you fail 70% of the time. I know it's cliche, but it's the fact. Um, and it's how you deal with failure. Uh, I got sent down my first year in the big leagues. I was totally not ready emotionally to play in the big leagues. I was 20 years old. I was two years out of high school, and I'm facing Tom Seaver and Jerry Kuzman and Nolan Ryan and I was just I was overwhelmed. And I it was the best thing that happened to me when I got sent down and it was humiliating when I got sent down. I remember I got sent back down to Tulsa and uh in AAA. Hector Cruz was there, my old buddy, and Ken Boyer was the manager. And um Hector welcomed me back. Ken Boyer called me in his office and said, What 
or what was what was wrong? I said, well, I was having trouble with the slider on my hands. And Boyer said, well, you're going to come out every day, and I'm going to throw to you every day at three o'clock, and we're going. To, I just want you to pull, 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 pull. And I eventually came out. I remember my first at bat uh, in Tulsa when I got sent down. I was in the on deck circle, and they announced my name, and I was so humiliated that I got sent down. And uh, but I got past it. And I made a vow. I mean, this is what I wanted to do. I mean, I wanted to be a major league baseball player when I was, I bought into it when I was five, six years old. I got my first baseball card, mm-hmm. you know, and Mickey Mantle. I was born on Mickey Mantle's birthday and he was my favorite player. I collected all his cards and all of his, all of his photographs and his poster on my wall. And I didn't want to be just a major leaguer. I wanted to be a star. And that was my drive to get back. So when you can get knocked down, pick yourself up and keep keep striving. Yeah, I mean, I'm, Gary, your question was about you know should we be admitting it in the midst of it? And I think we do with the closest of teammates. I think we do with the closest of coaches or maybe a parent or a friend. Um, but it's really hard to admit it to the whole world in an article or in an interview or it's. You know, and you and at times you feel like a shell, like an eggshell, but there's not a lot of egg inside. You just feel like you what you're portraying is different than what you are because it's scary to reveal all that. And it and it feels weak, like you're giving something to the opponent. We've talked about in this whole you know, series about how uh David Cohn's article helped the Dodgers, how Davy Johnson's quote helped me, how, how there's an emotional exchange between the teams in the media and in interviews that all of a sudden you feel like you're empowering the opposition. And so you, you get really guarded. You get really guarded with, with the personal stuff of what you're dealing with. And I think also oral, and when you're playing and you're a player with, uh, you're an established player that is looked upon, looked up to by your teammates. Yeah. You have to portray this uh, general pattern, uh, whatever <laughs> this. You can't show any any weakness. Right. Uh, for me, if I have a bad day, I couldn't uh, couldn't come back in and pout, yep. throw my helmet. I had to set the example for them, and also too when. You're out there performing. They look up to you to get the big hit for me, for you to yep. pitch the big game. So you yep. got to go out there and do it too. Yeah, it's it, yep. You're right. It's like it's it's that quote unquote being professional, and being professional has has uh, has its boundaries of what you can admit to and what you're able to show. You know, I, Billy Joel has a song about you know having his emotions on your sleeve, but my sleeves are rolled up. I don't wear my emotions on my sleeve. They're on my sleeve, but I roll my sleeves up. You can't see them. Sorry. And it's uh, it's it's kind of like that, Gary. It's it's an yeah. interesting dynamic to be a public figure and to be out there trying to do something and then being called on to do it again in an environment where you're not sure you can do it because the competition is so stiff. It's not like you're a businessman or a super smart person that can study for a test and the test is this piece of paper that has stuff on it that you know all the answers. You you can come with the answers, but the answers go up against somebody else who's trying to find out the answers too. It's a competition. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I had a question for each of you, different one. Uh, or I'll start it with you. How in God's name did you pitch that many innings 
<clears throat> successfully in that series. I mean, I, I look back at that. You, you had virtually, you know, no rest. You had, uh, you had yeah. back-to-back days. You started games. You went in as a, as a closer. How'd you do that? Um, when I go back and watch the games, I, I think, oh, my God, my mechanics were terrible. I, my God, you're not in line. You're not leveraging. But the, the one thing I did think about, there was I learned so much from Sandy Koufax on lining up the bones in your body. And in the bone, if the bones are lined up, then the muscles don't have to work as hard. So whenever I was tired or whenever it was, you know, can you really come back? Uh, I, I just thought about lining up the bones and just kind of falling down the hill and leveraging the baseball. And then in my priority list, as Keith talked about earlier about, you know, I added a couple mile an hour to the pitches in 88. I, I thought about the priority list of, movement and location was more important than velocity. So as I got tired, I always changed my priority list on what was important with this pitch and what's important in a pitch. If you have velocity at the top, it will make you flinch at the end. It will make you push it. It'll make you throw it harder. It'll make you jerk it. And then all of a sudden movement straightens out and, and location is less. And so I think Knowing how to line up the bones because of Kofax and then knowing how to reorganize the priority list in the middle of pressure games was the reason that I could pitch that long and that often. Wow. Keith, I remember something after the, uh, I interviewed Daryl Strawberry after the game seven, he was crying in the clubhouse. Uh, your, where were you after game seven mentally? I mean, what was the feeling you had? I felt terrible because I felt that I cost the game with that horrible play I made in the field that, in that second inning that uh, opened up the floodgates and made it a five-run game. I thought I lost the series. So I was – I couldn't live with it. Um, I kind of was just – I wasn't stunned. We knew the Dodgers were a good team. I mean, they – they beat us, but the fact that I had made such a terrible play, and I, like I said, the worst play of my entire major league career that caused it to blew up the whole inning, and really the game was over in the second inning. We were six nothing, and we there was no way we were gonna. It just knocked the wind out of our sails, and I just felt so responsible for that. And I remember all the writers came up to me and asked about it, and I just got to stand up and say, "Hey, I made yeah. I made a terrible play." And once you do that, you neutralize the rider. If you start making excuses, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Not only do you make yourself look bad, it just adds to adds to the papers the next day to their articles. And uh, just so all they got from me was I cost up, I, I made a terrible play. Uh, don't ask me why it cost us a ball game. I had the same feeling, though, later in my career, Keith, with uh, 95, I was an Indian and we lost uh, in the World Series. And in 97, I was an Indian and we lost in the World Series. And I felt in both of those World Series, there were times in 95, I felt like I lost my command and really lost my edge and walked a couple guys. They Atlanta comes back and wins the game. And then in 97, uh, as a veteran of veteran of veterans, uh, I I was giving away my pitches with my glove, which you and and I forgot about it because of all the pressure. Uh, for some reason, all of a sudden, the Marlins had my pitches, and I got I gave up like three home runs in a game. And I went back later and watched it, and I'm like, oh my god, the most basic thing, you are giving away your pitches, and they knew what was coming. And so I've had those same feelings. <laughs> Guys, couldn't be better. Um, 
Harold Hirschheiser and Keith Hernandez. Uh, deeply appreciate putting this on the record and uh, insights that you can only get from guys who competed in it. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, it's, uh, it's just been great as a fan listening to you. And that is going to do it here, another chapter of These Sports Rivals. To learn more about this and other episodes, please log on to thesportsrivals.com and you can join the conversation with questions and suggestions for future shows. We invite you to follow us, Instagram at These Sports Rivals, Twitter at Rivals underscore podcast, and on Facebook by searching for the Sports and Rivals podcast. And as we say, and how better to exemplify it than having Keith Hernandez and Earl Hershiser on talking to one another. As we say, it is the rivalries that make the games. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.